This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The one unifying task shared by our governor and legislature is to negotiate a budget for the July 1st start of the Commonwealth's fiscal year. While the House and Senate have stable Democrat majorities, the corner office has passed from a popular Republican, Charlie Baker, to the newly elected Democrat, Maura Healey, who just last week started the budget ball rolling with the release of a $55.5 billion proposal to signal her administration's priorities, promising to make Massachusetts more livable for everyone with investments in early education, transportation, housing, and the environment. Ms. Healy also acknowledged the need to compete with other states for talent and investment. To that end, the governor also revealed a $750 million tax relief package whose provisions on a state and capital gains tax may be intended to mitigate the blow to competitiveness caused by the multi-billion dollar income surcharge passed last year. What does this budget tell Bay Staters about our new governor's vision for Massachusetts? And will this first step in the long process of budget talks cast Ms. Healy as a rubber stamp for progressive prerogatives or as a responsible steward of our Commonwealth's economic and fiscal health? My guest today is Pioneer Institute's Senior Fellow in Economic Opportunity, Eileen McEnany who recently joined Pioneer after leading the Massachusetts Taxpayers Association, the premier budget watchdog in the Commonwealth, for the past eight years. Ms. McEnany will share her views on the governor's first budget proposal and tax relief package and assess how its key features are likely to improve our livability and competitiveness if they survive the gauntlet of the legislative process. When I return, I'll be joined by Massachusetts budget expert and Pioneer senior fellow, Eileen McEnany. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Pioneer Institute's Senior Fellow in Economic Opportunity and my new colleague, Eileen McEnany. Welcome to Hubwonk, Eileen. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, uh, this is your first time on the uh, podcast, and uh, we're going to be talking about what might be considered perhaps a dry subject, but uh, a necessary subject because uh, we have a new governor, uh, and we need a new budget each year. It has to—it's that that one thing that needs to start and finish uh, because we need the money to fund all the programs. Uh, but uh, our listeners may already know that um, this budget H one that our newest, uh, our new governor Healy just uh, proposed—it's called H one. Uh, it, it weighs in at fifty-five point five billion dollars, and by my reckoning, that's more than a billion a week. So it's a lot of money we're going to be talking about. Uh, and there's some, uh, uh, let's say, related proposals she has in there. So let's let's start a very uh, high level and work our way into the details so our, our listeners can keep up with all these numbers. So uh, let's uh, let's start at the beginning, which uh, which is this. I think our goal as a, as a Commonwealth, uh, the stated goal of the, the new governor was to make uh, um, the Commonwealth more affordable um, and more competitive with other states. So I think perhaps we use that lens to interpret um, what what the uh, what the budget looks like. So let's start at the beginning, uh, share with our listeners, $55 billion. How, just in general, historically, how does that break down? And you know, let's, if we can compare uh, past and future. Uh, sure, so as you say, you know, um, the governor's budget is her proposal for the state's operating plan for fiscal year 2024, which begins July 1st. And she's given extra time the first year she's the governor because 
It's a complicated document. And as you say, it's over 55 billion. That's in line item spending. But the actual overall spending package for the state weighs in at more like 62 and a half billion. That's because some things get funded right off the top and they don't actually get appropriated through the budget. But it is a lot of money. And, and the governor's first budget really is an indication of what her priorities are. Uh, okay, so th these are her priorities, but of course, this is the ball just starting to roll right now. Now we you know we don't have a king; we have a, a governor who then passes on along to the legislature, who has you know uh, many members, each with different priorities. Uh, that they're, they're going to massage this, right? They're going to take some things out and add things. This is what the governor thinks is important. So it's a it's a first draft of a budget, if I'm right. Absolutely, it, it's the starting salvo, if you will, right? And and so the governor files her budget. Uh, it goes to House Ways and Means. They get a chance to either reject, revise, accept either the numbers or proposals in our budget. Then the Senate does the same thing. There is always differences between the House and the Senate. It goes into a conference committee. Then it goes back to the governor who will have the opportunity to veto provisions. The cycle is honestly never ending throughout the year because then once they enact the, what they call the, the final um, gap budget, then they start on supplemental budgets. And, and so it's really a never ending cycle. Well, okay, so we won't get too caught up in the details. Let's let's uh, try to do broad strokes. If the governor's trying to communicate to the legislature and we the uh, uh, residents of, of the Commonwealth, uh, what is she trying to say? Well, let's start with the beginning with what she's um, um, proposed as far as uh, spending. Where are you are an expert in the budget? Um, where are uh, the clear differences, the the initiatives that look like uh, this is something that reflects a priority of the governor? So I, I think that the governor's budget reflects that she is focused on uh, the cost of housing, the cost of early education, uh, the need to improve transportation. Um, and, and then, you know, a whole bunch of other like investments in work, workforce training. So let's unpack that housing. OK, we've done a couple of shows on the fact that it costs a lot to live here housing wise, both in rent and and to buy a new home. Um, where does this budget reflect a an interest in helping people, either renters or home buyers to uh, to afford to live here in the Commonwealth? Well, so so I think that the most noteworthy thing is she's separating out housing in its own secretariat. So she will have a direct report responsible for housing in Massachusetts. And, and so that is um, that's certainly new. But that secretary of housing is charged with making sure that we expand shelter capacity. So for those that can't afford housing, um, housing replacement for new arrivals is actually the term she uses in, in her um, budget remarks. Um, access to affordable housing through rent vouchers and, and a whole host of other programs that I think will help um, those unable to afford housing. Uh, there, there is less involved in um, what I'll call market rate housing initiatives. So for those uh, who are unfortunately unable to afford a house, we call you know, this this is a very complex problem. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and talk about homelessness and, and those in the most need. Um, but we have on this show talked about the need for more housing. If we want to make housing more affordable, we need more of them. Uh, has there is there anything in there that encourages um, developers to 
to um, you know roll up their sleeves and invest in uh, new housing? Um, so it, it does fund programs, certainly you know that are already um, on the books. But I did not see any new program in that respect. Although, um, as you know, Joe, from glancing at it, the budget is several hundred pages, so that <laughs> it could be in there, and, and and I've yet to discover it. But, well, I don't know. You know, again, I, I you're you're the expert. I I just thought I I um, I was encouraged if I'm going to uh, sing the the governor's praises. I did see a housing development incentive program uh, that went, was increased from. 10 million annual cap to 50 million, uh, which again, I, I am not an expert in this. To me, this says, okay, um, you may get a, a tax break if you're willing to um, build housing, I guess, that, that falls along uh, the affordable and uh, commutable range. So uh, am yeah. I reading that properly? That that for for market rate housing in, in quote unquote gateway cities, that, that to me was encouraging. You know, and you're absolutely right. And what I would say is, as we know, um, Governor Baker spent a lot of time on housing and, and trying to increase the housing stock, making just building more housing across, you know, the pricing spectrum. And, and I think Governor Healy certainly builds on some of those programs with um, incremental additional funding. Sure. So uh, let's uh, move on to uh, what well, we one more element of housing. Uh, there are some you mentioned uh, rental supplements. Uh, how is is there anything? Um, you know, profound there, or is it uh, sort of steady as she goes? Um, you know, I, I think, again, it, it's trying to expand upon programs, um, acknowledging that housing costs are becoming increasingly unaffordable for a wider swath of the population, and, and so focused on that. Um, we can, you know, get, get into, um, in her tax package, if you want to, there's also a provision that would try to help renters by increasing the deduction and help seniors stay in their home with um you know income tax deduction for property taxes paid sure i think you make a good point and i don't want to conflate the two concepts we have a budget that is what the the government uh, is spending and then there was a yeah. um uh, filed alongside a, a what's called a 750 million dollar healy driscoll tax relief package so i don't want to complain the two concepts i do want to sort of tack that on there because I think it does also reveal a great deal of what the what the governor's priorities are. So let's let's uh, come back to to the uh, sure. to that. Um, you mentioned early education um, improvement. That seemed quite comprehensive, quite a lot of detail in there. Is is the the logic behind that again, I'm I'm talking in broad strokes. We want to make early education, that is pre-pre-K, I suppose, um, a priority so that people who are, let's say, two income families, uh, that they're able to work uh, and have uh, education and 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 have their children prepared for school. Uh, this helps people um, join the workforce and, and be productive. Is that the logic behind these kinds of early education programs? It is. I, I think that one of the biggest challenges confronting the Commonwealth is the workforce shortage. And that's due to a lot of things, certainly an aging population, people leaving the state um, and, and folks leaving the workforce to care for young children or the elderly, right? So there's a lot of reasons why people aren't working. And, and I think the governor acknowledges that. And so her approach is multifaceted. You have to increase child care um, availability, certainly for people who can pay, and also subsidies for those who need some help. And so she does both. So uh, you know, a scenario would be uh, a nurse with two young children at home might be able to work uh, if her or her children have uh, adequate daycare or early education uh, 
so so that that senior in Massachusetts gets the nurse that she needs, the nurse gets her job, and the kids get some early education. That that that's absolutely the yeah. It, it's an ecosystem, if you will. <laughs> okay. Uh, now you mentioned it, well, the next priority. I wrote it and then completely uh, uh, transportation. Uh, seems there's a great deal in there. Of course, uh, we're treated to uh, daily uh, stories of the T, whether it be uh, ceiling tiles falling or trains colliding. Or uh, we we love all love to see the T uh, fixed. Uh, what is in this budget for transportation? Not just the T, but in everything. Uh, there's there's a lot of money, and the money comes from the income surtax that was passed by voters last November, because as you may recall, it says the money has to go or is intended for education and transportation. And so the governor's budget um, estimates that there'll be about a billion dollars from the income surtax that comes in in fiscal year 2024, and she divides it uh, between education and transportation. So there's about $490 million in, in new investments in transportation, a lot of it is for highways, right? Making sure the bridges are sound and safe, but a lot more of it goes to capital investments in the MBTA to improve stations so we don't have falling ceiling tiles and the like. Indeed, I don't want them falling on me either. So the, um, the those of us, I'm glad you brought this up. I, I didn't mention it. Again, I think uh, it seems to me from my reading of the budget, she was very good at separating out that additional money, uh, we'll call it the millionaire's tax or fair share tax or whatever word we want to use for it, but we're estimating roughly a billion dollars in addition to the revenue that comes in. Uh, let me just start a little bit back. We talked about how much is spending. All of this is based on revenue and most of it's coming from uh, income taxes. And we've been pleasantly surprised even through COVID that uh, income taxes have, have, have been robust. Um, how much uh, does this proposal uh, increase spending over the year prior? Um, uh, not, you know, essentially, yeah. not what did the governor last year propose? Uh, I think Governor Baker had proposed a much smaller budget, and ultimately, as you say, when it made it all the way through the gauntlet of the process, it was a larger budget. But let's say, relative to what was spent last year, what is the governor proposing? Is it a larger number, smaller number, or you know, much larger number? So it's a larger number. It represents about a four point one percent year over year increase in spending. But it's not necessarily an apples to apples comparison because part of that increased spending comes from the income that will come from the income surtax, which didn't exist last year, right? So a billion dollars in increased spending is due to the estimated increase in income taxes the state anticipates collecting. And as a matter of housekeeping, those of us who were concerned about the effects of the millionaire's tax uh, on, let's say, the outflow of people who are in are affected by that tax but the promise was made that that money would be kept separate but those of us who are more critical of that plan said look money is fungible if we reduce spending on one side of the ledger by a billion and increase it by uh on the other side by a billion the net effect is the transportation education will get the same exact amount of money it'll just look like it's come directly from the millionaire's tax is there any uh, assurance that there's been no sort of reduction in the, the expense of uh, uh, targeted towards education and transportation in the in the basic budget before we then supplement it with the millionaire's tax. 
There is a net increase in spending for both education and transportation. And I think one of the important or notable policy initiatives in Governor Healy's budget is to address the very thing you talked about, right? A lot of people said the money's fungible. It's not really going to result in more spending for either education or transportation. And her budget goes to great lengths to make sure that it actually does result in increased spending because it sets up a separate trust fund. So the money from the income surtax is separated out, if you will, goes into a trust fund that has to be used for education and transportation. Okay. All right. That's good. Well, at least the governor's heard our concerns. Perhaps she's a, a big listener of the podcast. Uh, let's hope the legislatures share our concerns as yes. well. Um, so uh, uh, the, I, I want to talk also about health care. I learned from reading the budget that uh, mass health is the biggest single item on the entire budget. But I think um, uh, my big concern about health care is a lot of money uh, came in from the federal government during COVID for, for obviously a, a huge demand for additional health care. And that money, I believe it's uh, our, uh, our emergency is supposed to expire on uh, March or May 11th. I don't know what time of the day it's going to expire, but it will. Yeah. Uh, and some of that money is going to go away. So is is this uh, budget aware uh, and does it make uh, uh, preparation for all those people who, who are relying on federal aid to now, you know, that, that aid's going away? Say more about our, our health. Yeah, sure. So MassHealth, the state's Medicaid program, as you say, is the biggest single line item in the budget. And the the estimates vary, but it's roughly about 40% of the state budget. And so um, it's it's a big program and, and any kind of expansion in eligible folks for it has a big impact on the budget. And because of the public health emergency that the federal government had declared during COVID and has continued um, and, and remains in effect to this day, there are a lot more people on mass health than there has been historically. Um, about 400,000 people. And that's because the federal government said, hey, we're going to give you more money as part of our share of the cost. But in return, you can't um, kind of kick anyone off of the mass health program. And so uh, right now, there are about 2.3 million people that are enrolled in the mass health program. And when that federal health emergency ends, they'll be able to begin what they called um, the recertification and, and and they're expecting that those numbers will decline by about 400,000 people. To, to roughly the numbers they were trending before the, the COVID. So yes. uh, we're not going to use the word kick off, but 400,000 people will be, uh, let's say in the future, no longer eligible for what they were eligible for in COVID. And some of this funding is to sort of ease the pain, if you will, or, or create, I, I saw a, a mention of the term off-ramp off-ramp from, from COVID. These are these are supplemental yeah. expenditures. How does that how does that lay out? Uh, is it just uh, Mass Health or are there other other programs uh, like it? Well, Mass Health is certainly the largest one and it has the greatest budgetary impact. Okay. All right. Um so I, I'm you know I'm starting from the big stuff and, and moving on down to uh, the smaller stuff. Um within the context of education, which is a huge uh, uh, element um, there's a commitment again to uh, educating the workforce. I see a lot of uh, money uh, dedicated to making sure folks go to college, uh, early education. We already talked about. Um, say more about how this reflects with what the governor thinks is important as far as education. 
So education is a big priority of the Healy Driscoll administration. Um, and you can see that in the budget. As you say, they make investments really all along you know, the education spectrum. So starting with early education, their investments in both provider rates and the amount of subsidies. You go to K through 12 education, and this budget fully funds the Student Opportunity Act, which means more money um, for the 351 cities and towns for, for school aid. Um, we also spend a lot of money on community college, and there's a pretty new and novel uh, program initiative, <clears throat> excuse me, called Mass Reconnect, which makes community college free for people over 25 who meet certain conditions. And then finally, there's a big investment in our higher education system with some of that money, as I had indicated before, from the income surtax. Um, some of that new money is is devoted to higher ed. Um, uh, um, you know, we we think education clearly we're in Massachusetts. This is uh, you know the uh, Athens of America. We like education in these parts. Yeah. Um, but in, as far as community college, um, you know, they have they have uh, let's say um, uh, not a great track record as far as uh, completion rates. Is there what we've talked about in, with? Uh, uh, education policy experts in the past is uh, what could be even more effective might be uh, vocational training and, and, and job training. Is there anything in there to help people, um, you know, become all those great services that all of us need? You know, um, know there is. There's there's certainly money for apprenticeship programs um, and for vocational tech. So I think that there is acknowledgement. There's also money for it's called early college and career pathways. But the notion is. You can help kids in high school either prepare better for college by taking some classes while they're still in high school to get acclimated, get acclimated and kind of used to the whole um, college scene. Or you can help people who aren't going to college to have the skills they need for um, for a career path. So there's money for that as well. OK, uh, so we've been uh, well, I think I've been somewhat of a cheerleader for the, the governor so far in this budget. I'll say that if I had any concerns about. Uh, the line items. Uh, I see there's a huge priority for what we're calling climate and environment. We all want to see a better uh, environment. Uh, we don't like pollution and we all want to do our part to help the climate. But I see there's a sort of a line items for uh, uh, training people in climate justice uh, or environmental justice. This this you know, this gives me concerns, uh, but I want you to help me understand what that means. Why, why do, does the climate need to be, uh, do we need to consider justice in this environment? Well, so what I would say, I mean, I think that the the governor has said that she wants to make sure Massachusetts reaches its carbon emission reduction goals, which was set by Governor Baker by 2030. Um, and so trying to provide resources to ensure we get there. Um, but I do agree with you. I, I think the idea of the environmental justice is a little more um, kind of intangible, right? And not sure how that will all play out. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, you had said you were a cheerleader for the budget, and I think there are a lot of great things in it too. But one thing I, I, I have noticed is there is a lot of money sprinkled throughout various state agencies and for various initiatives on things like training, workforce training. And I just hope that it's coordinated, right, and perhaps streamlined to make, and that there are measures of accountability because we are spending a lot of money and want to make sure it's having the desired outcomes. And, and so 
um, you know, not quite sure what the goals of environmental justice folks would be, but I think that that should be very transparent to taxpayers. Yes, indeed, and almost I, I think it's it's odd to me that um, when we do try to impose a stricter environmental standards, the unintended consequence is to make uh, building less uh, more expensive, uh, which makes housing more expensive, which makes the cost of living more expensive. So. Uh, when reading within between the lines of the environmental justice, we're trying to make sure that we don't build, uh, I don't know, whole power plants in um, low opportunity neighborhoods. But of course, uh, I think it gets the direction of of that wrong. Uh, low cost neighborhoods may be less say less environmentally um, pure, uh, but that's why they're low. You know, that's why you can afford a house there if you, in a sense, clean it up. Uh, you're you're essentially gentrifying and 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 making those people who live there's lives, albeit cleaner and perhaps better for the environment, but they can't afford to live there anymore if there's a big beautiful park. Uh, but uh, you know that I'll, I'll enough with my editorializing. Okay, we we we've sort of covered the uh, the expense part, but we did say there's an attending uh, budget um, uh, a tax relief part of this, which is always music to all of our ears. Uh, we all like tax relief. Um, uh, describe for our listeners the contours of the tax relief package. Sure, so the governor campaigned on the notion that Mass she acknowledged that Massachusetts is unaffordable and, and less competitive. And so um, she provided a tax package to address that. And it has several components, um, many of which were included in Governor Baker had filed a tax package or their concepts that the legislature had entertained. And there's really five big components to it. Um, one is a dependent tax credit of $600, and that gets to trying to help with affordability of child care or elder care. Um, there's also an- Can I just ask, can yeah. I ask about the, the sure. tax credit? It's one of my sticklers, tax credit. Uh, it's effectively $600. If you have a child, you know, $600 check, even if you pay no taxes, right? This is not offset your taxes. This is whether you pay taxes or not, you get that money. Well, so you're right. A credit requires you to have tax liability. In this instance, it's a refundable tax credit. So if you don't have tax liability, you get a check from the government. Yes. Okay. About, you know, I, for our listeners, it's not your taxes will go down $600. If you pay nothing, they'll go, you'll get a nice- You'll get money. Yeah. Nice okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there's the, there's an increase in the senior circuit breaker, which is an offset on your income tax for property taxes paid. Um, and there's an increase in the renter's deduction. So it used to be 3,000, it's bumped up to 4,000 is the maximum deduction that you can take on your income tax return. Um, and then there is reform to the estate tax. Um, so Massachusetts has a, pretty onerous estate tax, one of 12 states to actually have one. And the governor goes a step further than certainly um, Governor Baker did in his proposal last legislative session or that the House and Senate entertained. And I think that's an acknowledgement of passage of the income surtax, which you know we, we can talk about. Um, and then the final provision is it reduces the tax rate on sh short-term capital gains from 12% to ordinary income tax rate of 5%. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad we've landed here on talking about estate tax and um, uh, capital gains tax. Uh, and you've sort of given a nod to the 
the to the millionaires tax. If if we have avid listeners who listen to every show, they'll know we're no we were no fan of the uh, the uh, millionaires tax. Not because uh, you know, uh, well, really, for the only reason is it's likely have the effect of uh, encouraging those who marginally want to stay but have considered leaving or retiring to Florida or moving to New Hampshire uh, to avoid the income tax. Um, uh, but what you're describing is a sort of a counterbalance. So we've we've disincentivized high earners from li living in Massachusetts. Now we're going to re-incentivize those who perhaps are um, uh, in the estate range of $3 million or slightly above. Uh, and we're going to say, look, that first $3 million that you leave to your heirs is not going to be subject to a to a um, an estate tax uh, for those people who you know uh, an average home in Massachusetts is starting to edge up towards a million dollars if they leave with any assets in their bank account uh, they're subject now to the millionaire tax as you know it's if it, if you your estate is a dollar more than a million the tax is subject to dollar one right you have almost no threshold uh, now you'll have a, what's effectively a three million dollar threshold I think that's going to have a healthy um, counterbalance. That's going to encourage quite a few, let's say, middle-class families uh, from either staying in Massachusetts or considering moving to Florida. Th this may have a, a very salutary effect on, on, on those decisions. What, what are your thoughts? Um, so I, I, I don't disagree, right? And I think if you look at the governor's tax package, it was trying to do two things. It was trying to help those uh, most struggling, you know, so those that need help with their rent or seniors, or on um, young families with children, right? And, and so um, those provisions make sense. I think both the estate tax and the reduction in short-term capital gains was aimed at folks who may be considering leaving, as you say. Um, and, and I think, and that is also acknowledging that the income surtax was enacted, right? And so people who are millionaires um, may be considering rearranging their affairs or leaving Massachusetts. Um, and then if you add on the estate tax, when we're just a, you know one of 12 states with it, that may be kind of a one-two punch, right? And, and so the idea is to mitigate the impact of the estate tax. And, and this provision certainly does that and goes beyond what was considered last year. My only concern is it may not be enough to keep the the really high income earners here if they are considering leaving because while it makes it less onerous massachusetts still is only one of 12 states with any kind of a state tax that, that's right and again many of our listeners perhaps <coughs> those more progressive end of the uh, of the ideological spectrum say well you know let's impose a five cents uh cost of bags at the grocery store so people will bring their own so five cents is supposed to incentivize you to bring your bags back to the grocery store, but imposing hundreds of thousands of dollars in estate tax isn't going to incentivize you to, to perhaps leave and go um, um, an hour north to New Hampshire or retire in sunny Florida. Uh, incentives matter. And I think, um, you know, this this may stop help blow the bleeding, but won't stop the bleeding. As you say, we are only one of 12 states um, and the federal uh, uh, estate tax is much higher. I believe it's uh, $12.3 million. Some yes. states have, have normalized it with that. Um, you know, in, in a perfect world, that would truly put us in a more, more, much more competitive. If we're, if we're looking for wealthy seniors to, to remain here, that, that might be the better better choice. Well, and, and that would be certainly something I think that the state should consider. That's what Connecticut does. So we would be more competitive with Connecticut. 
Um, but it would also ease compliance. It's just much simpler, right? If you pay, um, you figure out your estate tax according to the federal rules, and then it's essentially, you know, taxed at the mass rate. So ease of compliance would be another consideration too. And in discussing uh, Massachusetts being a tax outlier, taxing capital gains rates is short term at a much higher rate than the short term. I don't think any other state does that in the whole country. Again, you, you, this is your expertise, but am I right? Um, two others do. And, and you know what? I didn't look it up. So my <laughs> apologies for that. Um, but but it's certainly not typical. Right. And, and so um, I, I think that, you know, that's another point that I tried to make in a recent blog that, yes, it, it certainly is a good step. But again, I question, is it enough? Because what it does is make Massachusetts aligned with other states, right, with respect to taxing short-term capital gains at the same rate they tax other capital gains or other income. Um, and, and it helps, but I, I just, I, I question whether it will make us um, sufficiently more competitive to, to move the needle. Indeed. Again, um, I think the the fact that uh, I mean, we really didn't talk about this, but we've moved from having a, say, a Republican governor who clearly uh, understands Massachusetts must compete for for jobs, for talent uh, with all 49 other states, uh, you know, uh, and a new incoming uh, Democratic uh, governor. Uh, it's refreshing to know that she acknowledges that we have that competitive burden. Right. We um, it, it, without good Again, we've uh, in in earlier podcasts we talk about how footloose or how a, how able individual residents are able to move, and you know in the distant past, uh, people with no assets were the most likely to move around. You know, the proverbial hobos that could get on trains and work anywhere. In, in our modern economy, it's almost the exact opposite. Uh, you, your ability to move correlates with your income. The higher your income, the easier it is to pull up stakes and move to wherever you like. You've got the means to do it. So the more difficult we make it for high earners to stay, the more likely they are to stay or to to leave. And um, you know we're, we're making it harder and harder for them to you know to to to, to stay. Do, do, do you do you agree with that observation? Well, so yeah, I mean, I would say there are a couple of things going on, right? I, I think if you look at um, Massachusetts, we're a highly educated workforce, which means there are many white collar jobs which are able to be done remotely, right? And we saw that during COVID, many companies didn't miss a beat. People were able to log in and, and, and work from home almost seamlessly. And, and that continues. So you are right about um, people are able to work you know, remotely more so than ever before. And they're choosing to do so because of either lower cost or higher quality of life or for whatever reason. And so, um, Massachusetts has to worry about that because for a long time, we were losing our population, our natural born population, but we were backfilling that with immigration, right? And with college students who came to be educated and stayed. And we are seeing certainly less immigration because of COVID, because of federal immigration policies, um, or at least um you know, of immigration through either H-1B-1 visas or that type of thing. And, and so um, it's really important that Massachusetts be competitive so we don't lose more of our population than we have been historically. Yes. And of course, when you lose, uh, if, if we tax someone so much that they take, you know, say someone earning $5 million a year, uh, when they leave, they take the additional tax you've just imposed, but 
also all the other taxes they had been paying before you raised their taxes. So uh, they, they, they do. And, yeah. you know, and what I worry about is, you know, because the cost of housing is high, that when people are starting out, you know, is Massachusetts still a viable option for them? Or will they go to some place where um, the cost of housing is less and they're able to afford more of it? Because the other issue is if people are working from home or spending more time in their home, you know, they, they want a little more room, right? And, and, and so having, you know, the ability to buy as much house as you can may matter more than it did even a few years ago. Indeed, they can move and they need to move because they need the wide open spaces. That's certainly low cost housing in wide open spaces is not something Massachusetts is known for. So, uh, you know, they go for greener pastures, both because they're getting hit on their paycheck with taxes and because they're getting hit in their wallets with a, a, an enormous mortgage. Uh, so good points right there. So uh, we've done some uh, uh, cheerleading. We've done some criticizing of, of the governor's plan. Uh, I'd like to ask many of our guests, uh, you know, we're talking about somebody else's work. What if you were governor for a day or a, a year? Uh, what would your what substantial differences would your uh, budget look like? W would you change your priorities? You already you, you acknowledge you would try to make us perhaps more competitive and less expensive. But how, how would you in broad strokes improve on this? Um, you know, so first of all, I want to give kudos, you know, to the governor, because I mean, I think she focused on the right things, right? We, we do need to address the cost of housing. We do need to fix our transportation. And, and I think um, the cost of early education, you know, is um, a barrier to folks entering the workforce, right? So I, I think that those focuses um, are right. But what I would say is to fix education, to fix transportation, to fix housing, it takes a little while. Right. I mean, yeah, it takes a while to permit and build housing. It takes a while to make capital investments in, in, in the tr in transportation. So some of the more immediate things that can be done are things like tax policy, which can be implemented fairly quickly and, and which could have a noticeable difference. And I think we've talked about some of them. I might have taken the reforms to the estate tax um, a little further. And, and, and I think um, you know, lowering the rate on short-term capital gains, you know, may make sense. Maybe it's reducing long-term capital gains rates to encourage more business-type investment and, and so forth. Um, you know, and there are other costs that we can look at, we haven't talked about, but Massachusetts has high unemployment insurance costs, the highest in the nation. So maybe there are some reforms that can be done there. Um, it, it's really about trying to reduce the cost of a job or hiring. So, you know, some of that I think is important. Looking at healthcare costs, are there ways that we can potentially take some cost out of healthcare? Because that is a huge expense, you know, for families um, who are paying for commercial insurance. So that would be some of the things that I would look at. Well, it's good. It sounds like you've just uh, rattled off all the issues we've talked about in earlier uh, podcast episodes. We, we try to tackle transportation, education, uh, uh, healthcare. Uh, uh, one step at a time, but it's a big, big picture. And uh, it's very, very, uh, as you say, it's it's a long-term commitment to doing doing the right policy uh, and making this great Commonwealth even, even better. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have had you. This is our first uh, time together on the podcast. You're a new member of Pioneer. Oh, I haven't given us, uh, I should have started at the top of the show. Where where were you before you joined uh, uh, our uh, esteemed uh, organization? So immediately prior, I was at the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, which is 
you know, it, it's a research organization focused on fiscal and economic stability for Massachusetts. And so, then, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Keep going. No, and I was just and, and and I've really spent my professional career on public policy in various capacities, focused on issues of importance to the employer community. Good, I appreciate it. And again, there's a nonpartisan, and we I hope we've tried to to uh, stick to our our guns and remain nonpartisan in this uh, uh, review. I, I think we've done a, a thorough job. Um, where can is there um can can our listeners go on to um, the uh, a website and and drill down and learn more about uh, the, the the state budget. I think we can go to mass.gov or something like that. How, how will they get more detail on the on the? Um, you, yes, and, and so um, they can go to mass.gov and you can look in one of two places. If you look under the legislature um, and you click on House or Senate, there's a whole tab devoted to the budget, and it takes you through each iteration. So um, that's a good place to look. But also if you look under the executive branch, under Governor Healy's page, you'll see um, she has a click into her budget and administration and finance is an executive agency that's really responsible for putting together the budget. They have a lot of information there as well. Okay, and where can our listeners read what you're doing now for Pioneer? Uh, on Pioneer's website. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Uh, master of the obvious here. Well, thank you very much, Eileen. <laughs> this has been a terrific uh, first visit. I hope you'll uh, consider joining me again in the future for future uh, uh, um, budget uh, questions. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help make it easier for others to find us, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.